This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Genflone, and we are going to discuss correctional labor today. Yep, in particular, we're going to be starting from maybe what's known to, I think, the vast majority of, of listeners, which are the varieties of prison labor available um, and some current legislation that's happening um, across the nation to strike out the part of the 13th Amendment that allows for penal labor to kind of the more broader issues of is prison labor actually slavery or isn't it? Well, the 13th Amendment has an exception for prison labor. A lot of state constitutions like Colorado, where we live, also has a exception where you can put people into forms of forms of labor if they are arrested and are prisoners. Yeah, the particular um, form of the amendment states that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So the idea is, um, and kind of one of the things popular in the, you know, the modern anti-slavery movement, is to have the part that says, except as a punishment for a crime, to be stricken out of the record. We do know that there are a lot of people in U.S. prisons who currently engage in prison labor. Uh, in particular, I don't know, Seth, if you want to maybe break it down. This is more your area, but like how many people in the U.S. are locked up and, and what for and the whys of that. Well, there is a lot of info you can get from the uh, Bureau of Prisons online and their website as just, well as... Just for some light reading. The FBI. Uh, a really helpful breakdown is on the uh, Prison Policy Initiative site, which is prisonpolicy.org where you can see a infographic that uh, breaks it down really well. And roughly, we have around 211,000 people in federal prisons, uh, 1,350,000 in state prisons, and 646,000 in local jails, and along with uh, 33,000 in immigration detention and some others, it's around 2.3 million people. At this point, it would be helpful to uh, have a basic distinction between federal, state, and jail. So jails are not designed for long-term holding of people. Uh, uh, They are primarily designed to hold people temporarily while they're waiting trial. And as such, there are around 450,000 people who are not convicted in jail and around almost 200,000 that are convicted. There are also a lot of times fees associated with jails. Now, the fact that you have people who are not convicted who might end up staying longer than anticipated is one of the challenges of our jail system. But jails are run, you know, local governments, local law enforcement. State prisons are where the bulk of people are. Uh, Most of those are, are violent offenders, but not by much. And I just to clarify, when Seth is talking about these fees that happen in jail, these aren't fines associated with the crime. 
So while when you're convicted of a crime, you might have to pay restitution, you might have some fines associated with it, these fees are separate from that. So these are fees that you would incur while being housed um, either in a jail, a state, or a federal prison. And these can run from everything from, oh, I don't know, fees for education courses. In some places, fees for commissary, you know, to use, to get extra food or additional food. Also fees for making phone calls. Uh, if you have access to a computer, being allowed to use those. Uh, for clothing, for certain toiletries. So these fees can actually rack up quite quickly. So you can end up actually leaving jail, state prison or federal prison in quite a fair bit of debt separate from the fines that you've been assigned, the restitution that you've been ordered to pay or kind of your bills that have piled up on the outside world while you've been in. Right, and jails are far reaching since they are the entry point for a lot of people. now, there's a really good report by the Vera Institute where they look at jails in America and, uh, you know, in a given, let's see, I believe this is in a given year, yeah, annual admissions, it is 11,700,000 in local jails and 631,000 in state and federal prisons, which is a huge discrepancy of 11 million. Now, granted, these aren't people who are largely staying. So they might be in their days, weeks, but that's still a lot of people getting processed through the prison system, in this case, jail system. And I think a lot of the time, people who aren't involved in the criminal sort of justice system or don't have a familiarity with it will assume that all of these jails and prisons are run by the local government. When in fact, that's not true. There's a fair portion of them that are actually privately owned jails or private prisons that the state contracts out to. So if the state is unable or unwilling to kind of have the facilities, have the staff put forth that money, they may contract out. And that's how you get this idea of these private prisons um, or private detention centers when we're talking about, you know, juvenile offenders. And if you've heard about the recent... Uh, change in federal policy to move away from uh, private prisons, that's still the minority of prisoners. Most of them are in the state, and that's determined on the state level. So what you're dealing with then, kind of when we're talking about this idea of local jails, state prisons, federal prisons, and privatized prisons, is kind of four different classes of a justice system that someone who's been arrested and convicted of a crime might actually move through in their lifetime. Right, and that does not account for the probation system. At all, (laughs) which is a completely different beast that we're not going to tackle today, really. but it is important to think of it as part of the correctional system Mm -hmm. because that also affects a lot of lives. Exactly. All right. So when we're talking about prison labor... I think if you're at all like me, you kind of have this image in your head of prison labor being, you know, guys in a chain gang on the side of the road or people stamping out license plates. I don't know if it's the same for you, Seth, but it's kind of this cartoon image of like a conveyor belt of of guys in jumpsuits, you know, putting out the numbers. But jail labor or prison labor, rather, is more than just, you know, the grunt work 
of producing something like a license plate. It's also involved in the running of the prison or the jail itself. You know, it's being a custodian, scrubbing floors, it's working in the laundry room, it's working on the food line actually producing the food. So it's also involved not only in making commodities that are sold outside of the prison system, but for running the actual prison system itself. And so when you start to think about the fact that, you know, I don't want to say the patients are running the asylum, but in a lot of ways the running of the prison system relies on prisoners performing cheap or free labor as part of their sentence. One of the things that, and we're, we're going to try and hash this out a little bit, but one of the things that comes up a lot is, well, you can't, if people in jail don't want to work, you can't force them to work. Uh, that's not true. Um, in certain prisons, there's the, in particular, I'm thinking of the Angola and Mississippi farm prison system in order to receive any sort of privilege. So this is make, being able to make phone calls, having visitors, uh, leaving your, your cell, you must work. So there's really not a huge amount of agency and choice involved there when able to have any form of mobility or kind of contact with the outside world. Working in a field for a 12-hour day is required. Then at the same time, there's in-jail duties like the scrubbing floors, the cooking, the sewing and laundering of clothes, that sort of thing, that oftentimes are required, period, as part of your jail, you know, as part of your earning back your right, I guess, to engage in civil society is that you've got to mm -hmm. earn your keep a little bit. And this to me is very problematic because while I understand the punitive rationale behind jail, we're not just removing you from society as punishment, we're also making things difficult for you while you're there and that gives, you know, the American public, it makes us feel good because, you know, you're not being rewarded for so-called bad behavior. At the same time, it really worries me that we're requiring grunt work for people's day-to-day -day survival when we're setting down the parameters of what that survival looks like. Right. Some people would say it's good for them. Some would say some of there, there are prisoners who, who want the work. Some of them are paid. It's not a lot, but they're paid, and that money can be used to buy things. Granted, uh, not all prisons have enough jobs, so in those cases, work might be desired. Yeah, and I can see why work would be highly competitive, but then when you have issues um, that happened, I'm thinking in particular of uh, Lorton Reformery, which is a Virginia prison that had a, a prisoner strike um, which was that jobs were very competitive at this particular prison because the prison food provided was so poor that it was oftentimes inedible. And so in order to make money to spend in the prison commissary where you can buy extra food, this isn't high quality, this isn't going out for a steak. This is, you know, to buy ramen noodles, to buy Doritos, to have access to bottled water when there might not be a lot of potable water, you know, that sort of thing. In order to have access to it, you had to take a prison job that paid on average 32 cents an hour, where you worked roughly five to six hours a day. Now, to me, the job is only a privilege if one, it's fair pay, and two, if the money you're making is for the sake of paying restitution, 
paying for your bills on the outside, you know, providing uh, for those that are in prison that have, you know, children or dependents at home. You know, if you're making money, then you're able to have some buying power or spending ability, sure. But when you're limited to items brought in to the prison by whoever's in charge, priced by who's ever in charge, and the amount of hours you have to work in order to buy one packet of ramen noodles might be three hours because it's been priced at an absurd amount. I see no real difference in that between the idea of what we used to have with coal miners selling, you know, to quote the song, selling their soul to the company store, where you've got to work 10 hours in order to buy a loaf of bread because there's a monopoly in the area. And that's what bothers me the most. And there is a corollary in some farm, well, especially agricultural and mining places in other countries where they have estate stores. And so they come to locations they're unfamiliar with or or they're migrating to a place and they are located there and the estate stores charge more than other places. Yeah. And when you're in a federal prison, work isn't optional. Um, The Crime Control Act of 1990 established that all federal prisoners who are physically capable of work must have a job while serving their sentences. That then kind of opens up this, this other door where you are required to work, you're required to be paid, but your wage is set by whoever is running the prison, whether it be the federal government or whether it be a private corporation. Your pay is an extremely low rate, but then the prison has the option to license itself out to an outside corporation. So the corporation is then using you for labor. And so you're getting paid, um, one of my favorite cases is you get paid 72 cents if you're in a Colorado federal prison to farm tilapia for Whole Foods. 72 cents an hour, or rather, actually, sorry, 72 cents a day for producing something that Whole Foods then can turn around and sell for $12. And in the meantime, it's the people running the federal prison who are profiting. And that money's not going back into the prison for education programs or counseling or therapy. It's going essentially to a for-profit federal prison. And that upsets me. I'm, I'm like personally offended by that. Um, I like to think, you know, I'm a big, personally, I am a huge... I come from a law enforcement family. I'm a huge supporter of kind of the idea of the criminal justice system being this sort of system of redemption where you can kind of work your way back into being a productive member of society. And when I'm confronted with the statistics of how many people are essentially in debt bondage or chattel slavery in our prison system, it it really hurts my perception of, of the world and especially, you know, the U.S. being this, like, good, happy, safe place. I have to confront that it's a very unfair system. I don't like that. don't like having to confront them at all, actually. Well, and criminals are among the few people who you, everyone can dislike, maybe even hate or, or look down on. By virtue of being a prisoner, you have less rights. You can't vote in prison. Well, you certainly can't. I mean, when we've seen with the prisoner strikes is what they've effectively had mm-hmm. to do is do hunger strikes because there is no other option to not engage in this sort of commerce. The fines will accrue every day whether you do anything or not. You certainly can't leave. You know, you're being held. And so you're, you're forced. And, you know, we have some cases like this um, 
another fun one that I always like to reference is you have Victoria's Secret going into prisons and contracting out labor uh, in female prisons where we have women sewing very overpriced <laughs> undergarments and making roughly what I believe broke down to anywhere from 12 to 24 cents an hour, which is you wouldn't be able to pay someone in a factory anything remotely close to that price. But because people are held in prisons, you have that option. And I'm, I'm not trying to be crazy. I'm not advocating like a Swedish type prison system where it's more transitional housing, uh, where you get therapy and education. I think that'd be great if it, were, if it were possible in the US. I think population size and history of the criminal justice system, it's not really a applicable future. You know, I'm, I like to try and be as rationalist and pragmatic as possible. But I don't see how, once someone is in a prison system, continuing to sort of perpetuate the stigmatization of them, the othering of them by telling them that your labor, your work doesn't count for anything. And no matter what you do, you will always be undercut by the government. Doesn't matter if you work hard, doesn't matter if you're smart, and we have people, you know, in these prisons and clerical jobs or working, you know, um, there's a lot of people in prison systems if they have a medical background who end up being like a prison dental hygienist, if you will. That even if you work hard and are earning like a quote unquote honest wage, it's never gonna be enough because the government's always gonna take a chair first. I don't see how that helps anyone sort of gain redemption or kind of like reintegrate into society. I don't see how those two things work together. Well, and that's among the reasons that the black box, the in other words, on job applications, check the box if you have a felony or have any criminal activity, that you have limited options in prison and then you leave and then you are further stigmatized. And it's understandable that employers want to know but it makes it really difficult to reintegrate into society. Yeah, no, very much so. And, you know, I think if we're going to go with sort of the idea that the majority of offenders in the U.S. are, are repeat offenders, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> if the entire time you're in prison, you are, we'll go back to Angola, doing hard farm labor because society has kind of written it off that they don't care about you once you have the criminal stamp on your forehead we like our cheap lettuce, that's worth it to us, then, and you work hard backbreaking 12-hour days in, you know, in the hot Mississippi sunshine, the minute you get out of jail and you're told that that's basically the only work you're permitted to do, and then people were shocked that someone's like, no, I want to make money faster. I want to make more money. I'm going to go back to this thing I was doing before. It's very strange to me. And it seems a lot more punishment-based than it is, I don't know what you would want to call prison if it's not a punishment system, a reformative experience. Briefly, to talk about mass incarceration as far as numbers, it's been a bipartisan effort. Oh, yeah. You know, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and continuing with Bush and Obama, it's gone up. So we're not going to lay it at just one administration. Oh, yeah. No, this is definitely the thing that gets me, too, about it is that it's a long history of this in the U.S. This isn't a new thing. But as someone who's kind of a regional specialist on, on China, I've done a lot of a fair bit of work on 
Chinese prison labor systems and how it's a human right violation. And granted, way more torture, way more extreme forced labor, way, way more human rights violations in a Chinese prison system, hands down. But one of the things that the U.S. every single year complains about to China or to the UN Commission on Human Rights is that there is forced labor in these Chinese camps. And it can stretch everything from, you know, breaking rocks, again, to the formation of license plates. And if America is going to have these very firm statements that this form of prison labor is unacceptable, and yet not look in the mirror and say, well, we've had a very long history in the U.S. of using prison labor for profit, it's a, it's a little bit hypocritical and upsetting. So who profits from it? You mentioned the federal, federal example. I, yeah, so I think it's federal. And then I think the smaller case and the easier case to trace the money is when you have the private institutions, the private prisons, because then you have an actual, you have a head, you have a board, you have a corporation. So there's actually kind of faces you can put to who is making the money. You can look at how much people are getting paid. You can look at, it's horrifying, but their stock options. And so that's a little bit, I think, easier to trace the money. You can say, well, AT&T is paying, and I say AT&T because they've been using prison labor since 1993 uh, to run their call centers. So you can look at something like AT&T and see, okay, well, they're paying the such and such corp so much money as a retainer to work through them and then paying prisoners their particular salary. When you're going into kind of federal prisons that aren't privatized, I think it gets a lot more complicated because the prisons themselves are being paid by the corporation, but I think largely they're, who's being paid actually is the F, FID, is that the federal institution? It's either FDI or FID. Don't quote me on either Not one. Not sure. But it's a it's the particular organization through which all prison-made commodities have to be sold in the U.S. So you have outside company uh, is FDI, outside company FDI, and then the particular prison. So I don't think it's necessarily so much that there's one particular person in a federal prison, you know, kind of sitting back, cackling madly cashing on and all of that sweet Victoria's Secret money. I think what's much more common is the federal prison system is granted money through these corporations that is then used in other ways, whether it's staffing, whether it might be used in building new facilities. It's just not money that's going directly to inmate care. So it's the prison itself is kind of this monolithic structure profiting rather than one individual. Although I would be really interested, I don't know if we can access that, but it'd be really great to see how much kind of heads of federal prisons that have large contracts through FDI, um, FDI, how much they're paid. It'd be curious to kind of compare that salary to see if there is a cushion provided. And a different angle with private prisons especially is some of them, uh, CCA, uh, correct, what's? Oh, CCA, the Corrections uh, Corporation, something. Corporation of America. There you go. 
that they have lobbied since they are private to fill a certain amount of beds. Mm-hmm. And there are examples where they've been able to get what they want. Yeah, I think what you're referencing, Seth, is that there have been moments where they have uh, basically gone forth and lobbied that the prison population needs to be filled to a certain amount. And they need a certain number of workers. And then we've been able to see a correlation that year with the number of people arrested. And in some cases, we have seen members of the criminal justice system, in particular uh, Pennsylvania, there were two judges in 2014 who were... Uh, legally charged and cited because they it was proven that they were funneling juvenile offenders into for-profit juvenile detention centers and receiving a, a kickback for that. Um, when you're talking more about the idea of lobbyists uh, arguing that beds need to be filled for the sake of you know maintaining the prosperity of all, it's not as clear-cut you know as a judge getting cash slipped under his door every time he assigned someone to a detention center. But I think it's there's certainly a case to be made that when you look at the number of, say, like drug possession arrests and how that has increasingly gone up um, since the war on drugs was declared in the beginning of the 1980s, we have increased the number of people we arrest every single year. We've increased the numbers of beds every single year. We've increased the number of corporations that pay into prisons to get cheap prison labor. And maybe just as I get older, I'm becoming more and more of a tinfoil hat conspiracy (laughs) sort of theorist. But that to me, it shocks me that in all the years we've had the so-called war on drugs and in all the years that our criminal justice system has improved, we keep arresting more people and just put more beds in prison and then buy more labor from them. And it extends all the way into... Whole Foods, which is a store predicated on you feeling better about yourself because you're spending a little bit more to buy fair trade uh, goat cheese, only to find out that that fair trade goat cheese is raised by prisoners, certainly not paid a fair wage in a Colorado prison. It astounds me. Right. And to briefly touch on the war on drugs, the war on drugs has a bigger impact on arrests uh, since... 1994, there's been one million or more drug possession arrests. It accounts for around 500,000 of the 2.3 million, you know, drug, either drug possession or uh, dealing, which is not insignificant. But instead of looking at just occupancy, be aware that these can range from you know a number of years where it's been mandatory or sh- shorter periods of time, but that a lot of people cycle through by being arrested with uh, drugs. And it's just it's one of those things that when we're talking about the idea of prison labor and talking about the idea that while it's lawful, it might be unethical, and while it's lawful, it might be lawful only just. I think there's a side piece which is why are we okay with the idea? of prisoners doing labor for for no money or next to no money. And I think it's because we have, and by we I mean like the world as a whole, this conception that work is good for you. You know, work is helpful. Work is good for building character. 
Uh, it will help you reintegrate to society because you will learn the value of you know, hard work and determination. And I think that that's a very dangerous view to have, particularly when we're dealing with the idea of human trafficking, because I think there's this conception that runs pretty deep. And this happens when we talk about you know, labor trafficking versus sex trafficking, that sex trafficking is more harmful and somehow worse than labor trafficking because there's something still inherently good about work. Okay, so when we're talking about who profits, too, one of the things I think is important to remember, well, we're not talking about parolees or the sort of parole system as a whole. There is something when you are in certain prisons or certain jails where you can get work release, okay? So you stay at the prison, but you're permitted to leave in order to go work at a place of employment. If you are employed, um, you get something that's called, you're called insourcing. So if you get work release, there is something called the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, the WOTC. And so a company gets $2,400 in a tax credit for hiring you. And they don't have to provide you with any sort of insurance or a 401k or any sort of benefit plan. So a company, so if you get out for work release, in order to get out of work release, you have to have a job lined up. So if I'm an inmate, and I get out of work release and I go to work at a fast food place making minimum wage, no benefits, and then at the end of the day I go back to the prison. The company that's hired me because I'm considered a high risk or a risky target group makes $2,400 off of me. So that's one of the people kind of on the outside who are profiting from prison labor you have people inside and outside of prisons. So people working within the prison system and then people working with outside the prison system, benefiting from having laborers who are on this very tight, literal, you know, chained leash. Well, one of the benefits of a leash for a employer is leashes are flexible. One of the aspects of uh, our current economy and even the global supply chain, we don't always talk about, like we talk about the cost of labor, but labor flexibility is a very important part of our system. As the world was starting to outsource more internationally, the temp, temp and contract work system began to explode in the United States. And with prisoners, where you don't have to concern yourself as much with full-time labor, because you're not on the hook to pay them $15, $20 an hour, whether they're doing anything productive or not, then that also becomes a benefit of prison labor. The other kind of elephant in the room that we haven't talked at all about is that one of the people also profiting uh, is the military, the U.S. military. Um, and I have from the Left Business Observer... The federal prison industry produces 100% of all military helmets, war supplies, and other equipment. The workers, and by workers here we mean inmates who have been insourced, supply 98% of the entire market for equipment assembly services, 93% of paints and paintbrushes, 92% of stove assembly, 46% of body armor, 36% of home appliances, 30% of headphones, microphones, and speakers, and 21% of office furniture. So when, we're, when people kind of bring up this idea of this prison industrial complex, you know, this is a real thing. We are using, 
at, in the U.S. To, to subsidize our military, we are using prison labor for which the people working, you know, and these aren't, you know, two-hour shifts, you know, six, seven-hour days, they're making about 90 cents to $4 a day. And yes, I know that the kind of side argument to a lot of this is, well, your food's being provided. You're not paying rent. You're you're not paying, you know, the room and board kind of expenses of day-to-day life. You're not paying to keep the electricity on. But a lot of cases, these inmates are. They have families on the outside that they had been providing for and are expected to still provide for. They have expenses on the outside. Again, court fees, fines, lawyer's fees, restitution costs. And then mixed in with that, we have this idea that when you do eventually get out of jail or prison, you need to restart your life again. And I don't know how you do that when your savings are comprised of 90 cents a day. Right. And even when they're paid more, so among the other clients, uh, Boeing outsourced to uh, Microjet, which used prison labor in the Washington State Reformatory. And there, prisoners could train and eventually progress to $7 an hour. Now, granted, how much of that was taken after, you know, how many fees were taken out of that afterwards, that, that might be a different situation, but still, that, that's a fair amount. But the machinists at uh, Boeing's Everett plant were making, you know, $30 an hour. And that's one of the issues with this whole situation is prisoners can be paid less and prisoners are at times competing with the normal economy. And considering how many Americans are concerned about jobs and would like there to be more manufacturing jobs and low-skill jobs, it's rather upsetting how this distorts our economy. When you look at the numbers and you look at how many people in the U.S. are currently imprisoned and doing hard labor, we do have more people performing mandatory, basically unpaid labor than we did when we had legal slavery. (laughs) Now, granted, there's population explosion and and a whole bunch of reasons why that number's slightly skewed and we're not a fan of kind of scare statistics here. But I think it's insane that we have allowed a for-profit system to exist within people who if they, weren't in a, if they weren't labeled criminal, we would be like, clear case, human trafficking. Because if you work in a rock quarry in India, and generationally you've worked there, and you do get paid, you just get paid very, very little, let's say 72 cents a day. But you have no freedom of movement, you have no other choices for jobs, and you have an authority figure an overseer bearing down on you, telling you what you can and cannot do, and you're very limited in terms of materials. So, you know, you don't have a store that isn't owned also by the overseer. We in the human trafficking community go, absolutely. Clear case, human trafficking. Doesn't matter if you got paid. You weren't paid fairly, and your agency and ability to act freely was imposed upon. Done. Human trafficking. Clear cut. The minute we put, oh, but by the way, they committed a crime. <laughs> They're dangerous. They, they violated the laws of society. Once that 
punitive sort of we want to punish you issue pops up, suddenly it's not necessarily an issue of human trafficking. It's an issue of we need prison reform. And that difference to me is just shocking. It's the minute we insert criminality into it, done. Doesn't count. Well, it bears the question, what's the difference? There are people who are adamant that prison labor is slave labor. There are other people who would point out it's optional. Like one, another one of the organizations that has managed a lot of prison labor has was Pride in Florida, which has gone through many changes. But you know, from 1980s to uh, the early 2000s, it ran, let's see, around 2002, 2003, they uh, ran 38 industries in 21 of Florida's 121 prisons and facilities. But people there, the jobs, although they only paid between 20 cents and 55 cents an hour, and you had to you know, be free of disciplinary reports and be in good standing in the prison, these were coveted jobs. And people wanted these low-paying jobs. They were better than being a staff barber or canteen operator. How is that wrong? How is that anything like slavery? And we are going to discuss this, but this is another one of those situations where the word slavery is loaded, that there is room for a level of nuance. We also want to recognize that prisoners have a degree of agency. They may have a degree of choice. So this is a nuanced conversation, but you know now we're going to go a little more into the weeds of the conversation. So, JJ, if it's optional in this case, why is that a problem? Well, my, my reasoning for why it's a problem is, while it's not necessarily force, you know, all bold, is that if you don't opt in, so two things. One, some federal prisons do require it. So there are some cases where you have no agency or choice, you're forced. But shoving that to the side for the ones where it's an optional thing or these jobs are highly coveted. If you don't opt into these jobs or these positions, you are setting yourself up for a truly miserable existence in prison. Because you have to be able to purchase, you know, things above the bare necessities or sometimes actually the necessities. You know, because toothpaste is considered, you know, a luxury item in some prisons. So you need money to buy things to keep you alive and fairly sane in prison. And you have things that you have to pay for or support on the outside. It's basically you have to do a pro-con list of a positive and negative. And when you have so many overwhelming pros, and then the con being that when you do go up for parole, if you have... You know, so shown that if you have work experience or if you have done a job placement while in prison, you're more likely to get parole. Well, of course, then it's, it's a very clear that the system is set up that you that while you may opt into the work, the system is rigged in such a way that to not opt into the work is to just basically be be crazy. Right. It's a system of limited choice. And when somebody is being trafficked, whether they are caged in or not, uh, such as forced labor situations on farms or in factories. There's debt that's held over their head. They may get additional fees, especially if they misbehave. 
they can eventually, in many cases, pay off what they owe, but they come out of it with very little money in, in human trafficking situations, mm-hmm. forced labor situations. They come out with very little money, if any, and they know that if they do anything bad, that that will affect their ability to escape, to finish off their contract, to move on. So while it's not exactly the same, there are similarities, and we, we need to take those seriously. And a reminder, too, whether it's forced everyone who is physically able to must participate or you opt in, once you are in a prison job or a labor job, if at any point you refuse to work, so let's say you quit your job, if that's an option, you get placed most of the time in solitary confinement. You're punished for that. So there is no freedom of movement within job placement. It's not like you get work release, quit, move on to a different work release program. It's that you can actually be punished for refusing to work. And might that differ depending on the type of prison? or? Yeah, it determines on, it's on the state. So for example, in Texas, okay. if you refuse to work, it's automatic solitary confinement. But in other places, um, I know particularly like in Alaska, California, uh, Georgia, or Hawaii, you might get fine. You might have to, like your chores that are required of you might up, that sort of thing. And that, and to go back to that again, just by opting into a lot of these work or these job placements, you get what's considered, you can work your way into getting kind of commendations for your good behavior or good work, work ethic. So there's this idea that if I'm a prisoner and I participate in these labor schemes, there will be some benefit for me eventually. The problem is, like we see in human trafficking situations all the time, the vast majority of the benefit is going to the person who holds you know, the key to those chains. And unfortunately, in this case, it's the government. It's the United States government that's holding this particular key. Well, and when you have private prisons, when you have corporations who may get cheaper labor and profit, then saying, well, they, these prisoners need to pay their debt to society. They need to contribute to, their, to the cost of putting them in there. But then it raises questions. Well, if a corporation is able to profit and they're able not to pay normal workers, how do we feel about that? You know, are we really improving the situation? Yeah. How am I, as a prisoner, repaying my debt to society when a third corporate party has come in and is making me sew undergarments for their profit. And they're giving me 72 cents for, for the honor of working a full day. How, like, I don't see how that is something that is helpful to the community as a whole or, or gets someone ready to reintegrate into society. What I see there is that third party, that corporation, receiving immense profit without having to put much of any work into their own idea of what corporate responsibility is. Um, I think about BP after the ExxonMobil's oil spill, using prison labor to clean up the oil spill in the Gulf as opposed to employing unemployed fishermen who BP had essentially forced into unemployment with their poor practices. What I see it is I see it as a corporation getting a runaround on, you know, the average American person by employing prison labor. 
right? And JJ and I are not in the a mindset of corporations are evil. Oh no, no. Starbucks is on the list of people who use prison mm-hmm. labor, and I hate to say it, but I will be stopping for a pumpkin spice latte on my way home. It's the reality of the world that we live in. Pumpkin spice lattes. No, but <laughs> awareness is important, and just like we. You know, JJ mentioned you know, law, you know law enforcement. Her family. I have law enforcement friends. Uh, we've heard people say very helpful things uh, in the human trafficking center that represent law enforcement and that are very enlightening to us. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they should be above criticism. It doesn't mean that the system should not be critiqued. And it can be a challenge when we're throwing around words as they're thrown around with mass incarceration, with calling it slave labor or whatever. It can be complicated, and we want to recognize that and not just throw terms at it, but we also don't want to be dismissive of, oh, everything's fine, go as is, and, and you know they're prisoners, so it's okay. Well, maybe not. Maybe some of these situations are more like human trafficking and forced labor than we'd like to admit. Yeah, I think it's the last part that I keep coming back to. And you guys will see this in future episodes as we kind of try to unpack this. But I think one of, to to be an abolitionist or to be involved in the human trafficking movement is to be perpetually kind of unpacking all of your expectations or kind of preconceived notions of people, you know, and the things that people do. And realizing that if what you're going to be fighting for is the freedom, you know, the dignity of human beings, maybe you have to apply that universally. And so it doesn't matter if someone committed a truly heinous, violent act. You can't use their work for free. And that can be difficult to to get to. It's an easy thing to say out loud, but it's a very hard thing kind of intellectually and emotionally to wrap your head around. But it's necessary, I think. And with modern forms of slavery, it's usually not for free. It's usually very low cost. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, that you have to kind of rid yourself of this notion that if someone's paid, then they can't be enslaved. And increasingly it's, yeah, someone, someone can be paid, someone can have their room and board provided, but it's still slavery. They still don't have that freedom that's so very important. And so this is why this is not this is not an easy an easy field to to be in or live in or even work around. It's it's difficult. But but maybe that's what it has to be. You know, if if your if your fundamental project is how to make human beings free, maybe it's easy. It's, it's too simple. And in this particular episode, we focused more on the nature of what it means to work in a prison and avoided anything with race, ethnicity, or migration. That was intentional for this episode so we could focus on other aspects. Uh, One thing we are going to touch on, though, is prison gerrymandering Mm. because it has more relevance to the slave system going back in history in, in the United States. So slaves though they were very much predominantly African-American, there was the three-fifths clause of the United States Constitution, which apportioned not not just taxes on one hand, but uh, voting. It affected voting. It affected representation. It gave the South 
it gave them representation and made it easier to get the presidency and back then balance things out in representation. And for those of you who are kind of maybe confused out there about what prison gerrymandering is, Mm -hmm. what gerrymandering is on its own is it kind of, I guess the way it would be described would be kind of hijacks political power. So when you go to vote, there are state or legislative districts uh, that are drawn. So within, so federally or or on a state level, there are legislative districts that are drawn. And what people within those districts then vote, right? Okay, so we've all seen the maps where, you know, I think Seth and, Seth and I are both in Pennsylvania, so we're always a very contested state because of very strange le- legislative lines that have been drawn. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens quite a bit is prison gerrymandering when the legislative districts are drawn to incorporate prisons, and then what happens is they take the prison population and label that as a legitimate constituent. So they label the people in the prison as being able to vote and participate in the democratic process when in fact they can't. So you have a district that should, let's say, have 100 votes, but in reality it might only have five. Correct. So with the three-fifths clause, you had in general in the United States, and this included the North at the outset as well, you had about a third of the country, around 3 million to 4 million as we went into the Civil War. But you had one third of the country who three-fifths of them counted as a person, but they couldn't vote. They really had extremely limited rights as person property, but they counted for representation for places. And the fact that people sort of count for representation while not being able to be represented or to vote or, or anything similar is seems really unfair. So today, when you're in prison, and I don't believe there's any exceptions when you're in prison, you can't vote. And when you're in prison, you're often counted not where you live. Yeah, so what, what happens there is that a non-resident prison population, which is non-voting, may show itself as having a huge number of people. And all legislative districts are supposed to contain the same number of people. So what ends up happening is, again, to go back to that district, we have District A, District B. District A contains a prison that has, you know, 100 people and then five residents, right? District B has 105 residents. When it comes time for election time, since both A and B technically have 105 people on the books, they're both weighed equally. But in reality, in District A, only five people can vote. So those five people set the whole tone and have the same political power as the 105 people do in District B. And you can see how very easily then we you can have issues of not necessarily voter fraud, but kind of voter mm-hmm. illegitimacy. Right. And gerrymandering, it can be used by Democrats or Republicans. Independence. It's open to yep. anyone. And, <laughs> and it can, it's gerrymandering maps. When you look at just some of these maps and, and, and prison gerrymandering, sometimes where a prison will determine part of that odd shape map. It's it's a weird thing to look at, but, but also uh, to give a few examples of how this can affect things. And uh, I'll read a few things from prisonersofthecensus.org, which 
has a lot of great, great information. For instance, it will tell you that uh, Maryland and New York have passed legislation to end this starting immediately. So that's great. Uh, also, uh, Delaware and California are looking to end it starting after the 2020 census. So there is some progress on this. But for instance, 60% uh, of Illinois' prisoners are from Cook County in Chicago, yet 99% of them are counted outside the county. It helped uh, the New York State Senate add an extra district partially because of prison-based gerrymandering. So this matters. And when you have people who can't, you know, who are in some ways social non-persons and can't vote, but you're saying, but you count for representation. In fact, you count in this town that has a lot of people that might even be unlike, unlike you. Yep. You know, race-wise, culture-wise, or whatever. It just raises red flags. And the Pre recommendation is to have people be represented where they're originally from. This also pops into this idea that when we're talking about, well, why have laws not changed or why, why do laws perpetually allow prison labor to even be used? Well, it's one of the reasons is the people who are involved in the prison system very rarely have the opportunity to vote while they're in. And once they're out, uh, provided that they don't have a felony on their record, once they're out and are able to participate in the democratic process, they might be in a district or an area far away from where they were actually housed. And so the legislation that they might be involved in passing may not have any effect on where the prison that's using forced labor might actually be located, which is just a whole other dimension of snake eats tail to this thing. Right, and that too, we're not saying that that's slavery, but that was part of the system. It's a holdover. And it's a similar concept. And you can decide what you think about that. I mean, yeah, I'm going to go out and say it. Uh, personally, I'm going to throw my hat and be like, it's slavery. I, it's, it's one of those things where there's a historical precedent of it being used and being done. It, it, to me, it fits all the hallmarks of it. The only thing that I think distinguishes U.S. prison labor from other forms of slavery is that it's done with the consent of the law of the land and carried out, you know, under like a very watchful governmental eye. And, but I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna throw my hat in. I'm gonna make a definitive statement. I think that penal labor <laughs> is a form of, of human trafficking. I'm, I'm gonna toss my hat in for it. So I'll, I'll make that stand now, and this is why it's good I'm never running for office. But <laughs> But I'm, I'm actually okay with saying that. I, I don't take a lot of stances on human trafficking lightly, but I think it's important to, to make it clear like kind of where our personal lines are, since this obviously is information coming through like a particular lens, as fair as we try to be. And I think that my lens is pretty set and a little monocle that's anti-penal, uh, I guess, what would be, uh, penal human trafficking. My friend, uh, police officer friend, had asked with Amendment T in Colorado, which I'll read the Colorado version. There shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. So the change would strike everything from except. Get rid of the la latter part of that. And he asked, well, would that affect useful programs like community service? 
and prison labor. Now, can those have any potential uses? Yes, but as we've said, they also have some potential problems, and it could be argued that they're slavery. I would like to see these struck down so we could have that conversation. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's possible to really have a full conversation with things remaining the way they are. Uh, I think that you can make a good argument for certain volunteering issues or certain job training programs and volunteering that inmates can opt into. I think that's a little bit different than when you have kind of this outside third party that's profiting directly from inmate work. I'm all for training people to have, you know, uh, sustainable methods of employment when they leave. I'm all for educating people. I'm all for giving people if they the opportunity to volunteer to provide certain acts if they think that it's important to kind of the the reformation of where they feel they fit in the world, you know, to build a sense of self, that sort of thing. All for that. Not so much for producing a work product that then a company can can slide in and sell on and profit from. Not that to me is a whole separate conversation. So I, I agree with you. I think it I think it should be struck down and then we can have this conversation about, well, what about like doing, you know, children's literacy programs, that sort of thing. Right. And policy can be challenging. We we're we're of the opinion that policy isn't simple. Yeah, you know, you can make changes. Sometimes they there are unintended consequences. Sometimes the exact thing you're aiming for doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to test different ways of doing things with policy. But in this case, we have a large amount of people in some form of prison in the United States and you know, even more or you know, then more people in parole. Uh we need to do something with our system. It needs to be improved. Ways to do that. There's likely multiple ways that it needs approached, but having over 2 million people locked up, there has to be a better way system. to deal with law enforcement and, and, in our country. And beyond that, not just the number of people who are locked up, because that's more of like a prison reform and mm-hmm. a criminal justice reform, I'm just concerned with those that we do have locked up, we're profiting from. That's, I don't know nearly enough about the criminal justice system to suggest that we need to, to completely overhaul the system, you know? But those mm-hmm. that we do have in custody, we're making money off of them. Like that, that to me is a huge glaring concern. Yeah, and it raises a conflict of interest question. Mm-hmm. Are we primarily about reforming or profiting? From this entire system, yeah. And if we're profiting from it, and and there is arguably incentive to jail people or put them in prison if there is a profit motive, then that's not okay. Yeah. Are we are we involved in corrections or are we involved in construction? I guess is the thing. Are we more involved with helping people repay their debt to society and reintegrate, or are we more concerned with them making stuff? That, that I, as a form of punishment. So, well, on that heavy, happy note, Seth and I are going to sign off. We wish you all the best. If you're at all interested, we please, please encourage you to check out the Prison Policy Initiative. 
And we will include uh, links to some of these mm-hmm. on our website, speakerfortheliving.com, and in our liner notes. So that, yes, look it up yourselves. Don't accept everything we say. Yeah. Just go and look and yeah. come up with your own conclusions. And as always, uh, please you know, respond. Let us know in the, in the comment section if there's anything in particular you'd like us to cover or points you feel we didn't adequately address. So I hope you're doing well out there in the world and uh, go forth. Fight human trafficking. <laughs> Till next time. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.